0: Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you guys. Your eyes is actually going to help me here in a second, so he's making his way over here. Um, just concerning uh, retreat, uh, man, it's so exciting. I mean, it's looking like we're going to have more people at retreat than we've ever had. Um, am, I, am I turned down? Tell so if I'm yelling or if I'm... Okay. I'll move this up a little bit. Um, and so that's, that's really exciting. Uh, we need to be very prayerful uh, about... Uh, the teaching and the instruction. Uh, there will be a lot of people who this is their first real experience that they're going to have with us as, a, as Kaya, as a family, as a ministry. I mean, I remember it was like a year ago. This was like David's first thing that he was at, right? It was one of the first big things that you attended. There's a bunch of you who are in that same boat. And, um, and it's really great that we get to come together and be a family for a weekend, be a ministry of friends, and to have some true fellowship. Uh, and so I'm very, very excited about it. Please be praying. Uh, Tony Godfrey is ready to roll. I mean, and, uh, and he texted me this week and he said, hey, is it okay if I preach from Acts? <laughs> and so um, I, think he's, I think he's right in tune with us as a ministry. So I'm going to let Uriah kind of introduce us to the passage. He's going to recap the passage and then pray for us again.
1: Read it, right? Just read it, man. Okay. You said recap. But I do not know if I was supposed to review for you. No, that would be uh, awkward. Yeah, I can't. I can't. All right, so Acts chapter 2, and then verses 14 through 41. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Um, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Mm -hmm. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope." Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known, thou hast made known to me uh, the ways of life. Thou hast made me. Thou shalt make me full of joy uh, with thine countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us until this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn. With an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine in, my, thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. So Father, we come to you again, Um, Lord, and would you give us this faith, um, Lord, to hear your word and and to be challenged and to be grown, Father, the son that you provided for us, Lord, the sacrifice, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know that son as their Lord and Savior, um, Lord, that they would respond, that your word would draw them. Lord, and for us who are... Are weary or, or joyful or, or full, wherever we're at, Lord, would you meet us and um, facilitate, Father, as we humble ourselves and, and, and just small ourselves before you, Lord. You are God, and, and you knew all this stuff before we were even born or before we even fathomed what the world was. Um, Father, creation is yours. The world is yours. Everything is yours. Um, so, Lord, teach us and grow us and stretch us, um, Lord, help us to be uh, more like you, for you and, and more like you for each other, God, we love you, um, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks, brother. It. One of the things I'm really looking forward to is the is the worship set at fall retreat. They're always really, really good, and I'm excited about that. Let's uh, also once again just thank Daniel for all the work that he's doing. Um, get, yeah. Good. So what? Um, what Uriah just read to you was what I got through last time we were together, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, impressive, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we covered a lot of ground. So, just by way of, of summarizing, what we have here is the, the birth of the church, okay? Um, and so, what's happening? What's happening? Well, uh, the apostles, the ones who were following Christ, were commanded to go to an upper room to wait the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they went and they did that. They obeyed Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit came. It descended. uh, It engulfed them. It it indwelled them. And they went out into the streets and began to preach. And they were preaching not just uh, in their own words, but they were preaching using the tongues or the foreign languages of other Gentile nations. And so all of the people that were in Jerusalem during that time walking the streets were hearing uh, the gospel being preached in languages uh, that matched their own, right? If you had someone from a surrounding region, uh, they were there uh, doing maybe to worship or to do business, to do commerce, and they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached in their own language. And we knew that this was the, the feast week, right? And so Jews were also there gathered to do religious activity, to worship. And as they passed by, they they heard these Preachings, right? We heard they heard these Jewish men who were unlearned preaching in foreign languages, and they think to themselves a couple things. First of all, this is impossible. These guys are too stupid and ignorant to know so many different languages. So this is very odd. Okay. Second, to hear the gospel or to hear the message of God being preached in a Gentile language to a Jew would have been repulsive, right? Uh, They would have hated that. And then lastly, they would have resented the fact that this was a message of the Messiah. And so Peter recognizes that the Jews are um, uh, overwhelmed perhaps or annoyed by what's happening. Maybe they have questions. And so he turns his attention to them and begins to preach the gospel to them. And that's what Uriah just read to us. Um, He preaches from Joel. He preaches from the prophecies of David. And um, suddenly these Jews begin to recognize the severity of de- the denial of Jesus Christ. Suddenly they're pricked in their hearts, is what the passage says, and they're overwhelmed by conviction, and they recognize, they recognize for the first time that they ha- had part in killing the Messiah, that God had sent into this world to die for their sins, okay? that they had responsibility in that. And so they're convicted, and they ask the question that every person... Who desires to know how the gospel might save them, they say, What shall we do? What shall we do? Which is the religious question, isn't it? (laughs) Because at the end of the day, it wasn't anything that should be done. It was a belief that needed done in their heart, right? It was a decision that needed to be made. You know, here's the beautiful thing is that we've had salvations in this ministry, even in the last couple weeks. People who have asked the question, Well, what shall I do? What must be done to amend? The sin that I have, I know that I have in my heart. And man, it's such a blessing to know that people are coming to know Jesus Christ, right? In our passage today, as we move forward, um, what we see is the early church doing church. We see the fellowship of these new believers learning and growing together. Uh, this portion of Acts is often gone to, right, uh, to... to to teach from, what should the pure church look like? What should it look like for a believer to just consider the things, the basic things of the gospel, and to live in those things? And what we call today's message is uh, Fellowship's Foundation. Fellowship's Foundation. So if you're a note taker, right? Um, So today's message is Fellowship's Foundation. What we're going to see is we're going to see these newly birthed Christians, brand new baby believers, Living in the basic necessity of what they know of who God is. And what we're going to get today is, um, we're going to get what I'm referring to as as ingredients. The ingredients of pure fellowship. Okay? And so I want want us to pay extra close attention. You know, when my kids were born, I always had a really hard time naming them. Right? It's very hard to name a child. And it's bizarre because when you're at the hospital, this was true with our firstborn shepherd, um, we were torn between two names. We had two names picked out. Uh, for those of you who were my students at the time, uh, you may remember me racking my brain about this. Alex, you remember that? It's very difficult. Yeah, like pros and cons. I write pros and cons lists on the board <laughs> in front of the class. And, and the, the, the truth is it's really hard to name a person before you've even met them, right? It's so bizarre that we do this, right? And so we're at the hospital. Even and I are at the hospital and, uh, and I'm, I remember texting, remember texting Sam, saying, Sam, name my child for me. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know what to do. So you go like to the person that you respect the most, like, just name my child for me. <laughs> and we're there. And, and we found out that you can't leave the hospital unless you've named your child. They don't let you go anywhere. <laughs> right? you can't, you've got to name your freaking kid before. <sighs> so we're at the hospital for days, right? And uh, Eva had a C-section, so luckily it gave us a little bit of extra time. No, actually we were just like, hey, we haven't named the kid yet, so we're just going to stay in there a few days. The hospital's cool with that. No, they're not. Uh, no, but we, we, we were there for a few days, and man, it took us right up to the last minute to decide how we were going to name our son. We were d- between two names, and you're going to laugh at the other name, because it's not his name, right? So it's going to sound funny to you. But we were torn between Shepherd and Ellsworth. No. What? <laughs> We were really... No, like Ellsworth Kelly, the artist. <laughs> but no, but the, yeah, right? Ellsworth Kelly, right? Okay. Uh, uh, who's my favorite artist, but also the name Ellsworth is the same name as Elijah, right? Uh, in, in, uh, in Old English, right? So whatever. We were torn. Be- you know, you could think whatever you want. We were torn between these names. <laughs> All right. I don't need your judgment today. <laughs> No, but, you know, what we wanted and what we were asking the Lord is to, for him to show us, like, some ca- the character of this child before we made a decision that was so weighty. Like, we want to know if the name fits. Now, obviously, the name Shepard uh, implies oversight. And, you know, over the first few days in the hospital, we saw Shepard. He was like, this is different than our other kids, but he was, like, lifting his head up and, like, listening to people's conversations. He would, like, turn his head. This is like a newborn child. Uh, and he's like... <laughs> Looking around, and what we realized pretty quickly is that he was an overseer, that he, was, he had great interest in others and what was happening around him and his environment, and we knew this is shepherd, right? You know, the thing about the early church is we can tell that they're followers of Jesus Christ. We could tell that they're Christians. They weren't named Christians until chapter 11, right? We don't see that name come up. Until chapter 11. But we know that they're Christians by their character. And how they act. And how, and, and how they, they respond to the fact that the gospel is true in their lives. And this is what we're seeing here at the end of Acts. We're seeing the character of the church displayed. And by that character, we can know that they're believers in Jesus Christ. We can know that. So let's start from the very beginning. Right? Let's start from the beginning in verse 42. After they get saved, what happens? It says, And they, these 3,000 plus those followers, plus the apostles that were before them, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So the first ingredient of fellowship is pure doctrine. Pure doctrine. It's very important. The first thing, you know, the first thing in any organization... That develops, you know, I don't know if you're like a cl- in a club on campus, or maybe those of you who are a part of FOI, you know this process, right? When, when FOI was born as a sponsored club at UMKC's campus, there's a few things you do. You've got to come up with a mission statement. You've got a charter. You have to put together a charter. You some, some clubs put together some sort of covenant, right? Uh, that's usually used if you start a cult, a covenant, <laughs> right? Oh, God, that sounds like really heavy, doesn't it? A covenant. Maybe you put together a covenant. Um, rules for engagement. And this is all done to ensure su- sustainability and the success of your, of your club or your organization. You know. In this case, the doctrines that the apostles received were handed down to them from the Savior of the world. That's pretty sure. <laughs> Jesus Christ, handed. he said, hey, these are my commands, and you're going to hold to these things. And they were adopted as the apostles' teachings. It was handed down to them. And those things became the thing that these early believers held to and lived. From the very beginning, they knew that if, if doctrine was to fail, then the church would fail, and the mission would fail. Doctrine cannot fail. But it does, doesn't it? Sometimes doctrine fails to be lived out in the lives of believers. You know, this This is the, this church, this early church, what they were doing was discipleship. Living steadfastly in the doctrines. What they were doing was they were discipling one another. And these 3,000 newly saved believers were being taught the basic doctrines that Christ had handed down. And look at the absolute success of this. Over in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. You know, the apostles are being interrogated by the religious. And it says uh, that the, these religious men were... were were giving them a hard time, and they said to them. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, "Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name?" So they're angry about the teachings. They're angry about the doctrines being proclaimed. And it says, "And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intended to bring this man's blood upon us." The doctrine was very important to those early believers. But you know what today. Uh, In Christianity, the failure of Christianity is really, at the end of the day, a failure to hold true to the doctrines that have been handed down to us. Staying staying true to doctrine has always been an issue for the church. Always. From the very beginning, there was an attack on doctrine. The enemy has always sought to taint the truth and to confuse believers. Look at what 2 Peter says, uh, 2 verse 1 says, And there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that that bought them, and, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason, of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness so shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. In other words, Satan is alive and well, and he's at work confusing the basic doctrines that, the, that the, the Savior of the world has handed down to us. You know, this was a big topic this year at our Certainty Conference. That's what Certainty Conference, every year, is about addressing some sort of doctrine that, uh, that men have tainted. Okay, And so the thing that we need to know about the certainty of God's words is that if Satan can bring uncertainty to the words that were handed down from Christ, then he can disable even the most well-intentioned believers. Okay, So what I'm saying right now is not even an attack on the intentionality of Christianity. What I'm saying is that we, that we quite literally make ourselves impotent in our agency for the gospel if we neglect to adhere to the truths that have been handed down, we will fail. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned we are, believers. It doesn't matter how passionate you are about Jesus Christ. If at the end of the day, what you're propagating is false truth, then you will make impotent the gospel and the church will continue to fail. Do you understand? This is the issue with the failure of the church, both yesterday and today. This is incredibly important. See, we are inundated with doctrinal abuses of all sorts. False doctrines of salvation. False doctrines of spiritual gifts. False doctrines of the end times. False doctrines of church structure. False doctrines of what the Great Commission is. False doctrines of what sin is. We are inundated with it. And whether or not you, you recognize it, it's all around you. And it's seeking to impose its will upon what we believe are the sure words of truth. We have forcefully imposed our feelings, our philosophies, our psychology, our secular perspectives on God's Word. Why? To protect ourselves from its authority. To protect ourselves from its authority. Because if it has authority over our lives, then our personal views and our experiences are at stake. See, we've got it backwards. We've got it backwards. What we want to do is make our personal feelings, experiences, and philosophies first. And the doctrines of Jesus Christ second. So here's our first key point. Doctrine is the test of experience. Doctrine keeps our experiences, our feelings, our perspectives in check. It is the thing that comes first. Doctrine is the test of experience. Experience is not the test of doctrine. We have to get that right. There is no church without that perspective. There is no fellowship. The remainder of what we read here in Acts, in terms of the goodness and the purity of the church, that does not exist, friends, if we don't first put doctrine ahead of all things. The truths that Jesus Christ hands down are first and foremost of importance. You know, Kaya, if we are to remain true to the doctrines that have been handed down, then we must take the literality of Scripture seriously and we must surrender to its statutes. Our heart must be to surrender our will to the will of God. Now note that they were steadfast. See, their their surrender required steadfastness, constancy, and devotion. See, learning and growing requires steadfastness and consistency. It requires it. You know, so often... A lack of consistency is what causes a disciple of Jesus Christ to fail along the way. They start the, the race off with a good pace, but then somewhere along the way, they get off course. I, uh, I, this is embarrassing. I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, so I went running one morning at, at, out in Ohio. Okay. So, you know, I try to stay healthy, right? Yeah. And so. Uh, I went out running. It was dark. It was real early. Um, I woke up. It was like 5.30. I couldn't sleep. I got up, and I went running. Okay? It's dark. It's a little foggy. It's a little rainy. It was nice. It was perfect for running. Uh, and there was there's like a, uh, a wind, those like wind generators, a, electrical wind generators, right next to the hotel. And I think to myself, there's, there is that windmill. If I, if I just start running, I'll know how to get back because the windmill, I'll see it now. Uh, but the fog, the fog, my friends, was thick and it was dark and I got about three miles away from the hotel and I got lost I got lost and I ended up running almost I think it was almost eight miles <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: right and I'm like I'm going I'm literally I know I'm I'm like I'm like the nation of Israel in the, in the wilderness and I'm just going around in circles and it felt like 40 years but then eventually I came across this woman who was carrying a mallet in her hand. Because this is what women, when women go walking in the dark, they carry weaponry. I don't know if you know this. But she has a weapon in her hand. And so I make sure I announce myself as I approach her, like, excuse me, like really clear. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's just right down that street. And l- like, literally, I, I just run like another half mile and I'm there. So I'm an idiot. Uh, but this is my point to you, is that s- so often we can get off course. Well-intentioned believers can get off course with just one uh, fatal decision, uh, one small doctrinal variation. If we don't take the literality of Scripture uh, as, as significant and important, uh, it, it will not be a compass to us. It will not be a guide. And the truth is, at the end of the day, this ministry and the ministry of MBT will fail if we don't continue to put doctrine first. We need an authority, and it needs to go before us. Key point number two, a unified and purposed church is founded on the authority of God's Word. A unified and purposed church is founded on the authority of God's Word. Are we surrendered to the authority of God's word? If so, we set in course a church that is unified and purposed in all of its pursuits. Okay? We set into course the simplicity and the purity of a true gospel ministry. Brothers and sisters, fellowshipping together, loving one another, devoted to the work. Do You understand? Doctrine must come first. What's our next ingredient? Our next ingredient is fellowship, and it describes for us fellowship. Verse 42 says, And fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. They fellowship. They spent time with one another. They enjoyed one another's company. that reminds me a lot of this ministry, actually. In fact, when I think about uh, fellowship in its purest form, I often think about you guys, and how devoted you are to one another in your Bible studies. Okay, and how you look out for each other, and how you counsel each other. But look at the ingredients even here of fellowship. Fellowship includes food. Yeah. Fellowship looked like gathering around a table. Now food unifies, does it not? The breaking of bread unifies us. We know when people break bread that they are exercising community. In some parts of the world, if someone invites you into your, their home to eat with them, it is literally uh, the most important thing, the most reverential thing that they can do. The most respectful thing that they can do is to invite you into their home and feed you a meal. Uh, in India, we went to, to preach in a, a Muslim slum late at night. Late into the night, it was like midnight. We went in there sneaking in to do, uh, to do church. You remember this? Uh, Uriah was with me, uh, to do church uh, to some widows uh, that lived there. Now, their houses were like the size of those two cabinets put together. I mean, they were very small, uh, and they were like a closet space. And these women clearly didn't have anything, but they insisted upon us eating. And I didn't want any of the food, uh, but I ate a bunch of grapes and cookies and things that night, because they were what? They They were showing me respect. Now, when we gather together, food does unify. It does something. Uh, cooking a meal and setting a table is what? It's servanthood, isn't it? When you cook a meal for someone and you set a table and people gather around it, what, you're, what are you doing? You're serving one another. So servanthood is a crucial part of eating together. What else? Right, thank you. By the way, thank you, Haley, wherever you are, and all the people who are helping prepare that food. Thank you for facilitating fellowship. We're going to enjoy that. Um, Sitting down, it creates a sense of equity, doesn't it? Now, Bobby, I just saw Bobby walk in. He's like seven feet tall. (laughs) But when Bobby and I sit down at a table together, he's not quite so tall, is he? When we sit down, when we're all seated around a table, it brings a sense of equity to the table. We all become one. It unifies us and it says, you know what? Under the banner of Jesus Christ, we're all the same. We're all the same in his eyes. Sitting around a table, it promotes communication, doesn't it? It promotes communication. When we fellowship around food, it, pro- it provokes us to talk and to speak and to share with one another. Chewing food is vulnerable. It's a vulnerable thing. And I've seen how some of you chew. And I would ask that some of you maybe grow less vulnerable. All right. All right. You know, one of the things I've learned is that people eat different all over the world, too. Like, in some cultures, it's just, it's, like, cool to eat with your mouth open. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but th- this is what food does, is it unifies us in this way. So here's our key point. Key point number three. The table, the table is a catalyst to facilitate, facilitate true and meaningful fellowship. Don't forget that, Bible study leaders. Don't forget that, ministry leaders. When you have meetings and when you gather Food does something. It does something. The early apostles knew that. Now, of course, some of these these times together was was them doing the Lord's Supper together. Of course. But as as we look at Acts, when they're talking about breaking bread, quite often, it's just them eating meals together. Right? And it does something. A table is a catalyst to facilitate true and meaningful fellowship. Another part to fellowship is prayer. Another key ingredient to fellowship is corporate prayer. Now, what do we mean by corporate prayer? Okay, here's our next key point. You ready? Can you handle this? I'm moving quick. I'm moving quick. Stay with me. Key point number four. Corporate prayer is the collective work of those who are agreed with the intention, okay, to align their desires with God's will. Now, we know that's how prayer works, right? That's how prayer works. We'll talk about that in a second, but but it's about aligning our desires with God's will. So corporate prayer. prayer. Prayer should be done in your closet, of course, privately. That's how most of us like to do it. Or at least we say we do. No one knows because they're not there. <laughs> right? Some of us have really weak, you know, really weak private prayer lives, um, which we need to work on. Super important to have a prayer closet. Very important. No one's taking that away. But if we look at the whole of the New Testament... Whenever we see people praying in the New Testament, we see them praying together. In fact, the majority of prayer that takes place in the New Testament is assumed to be communal. To gather together with the brethren and not pray, listen to me, is an abuse of our fellowship and a neglect of our liberty. And it's a neglect of our liberty Think about that. You know when you come together with the brethren you're supposed to be praying. But often you make excuse that you didn't do it when they leave. Oh, "Oh, we should have prayed. No, you exercise liberty to the neglect of the thing that God has called believers to do when they come together. Does that make sense? When we come together, we ought to make prayer a part of what we do. This is why we gather together on Tuesday nights. Nothing will connect you, you in heartfelt fellowship the way sharing a prayer life will. You know, one of the biggest uh, um, regrets of my early on in uh, me and Eva's marriage is that we were devoted to having private time with the Lord and we didn't pray together as much as we should. Right? We, we regret that. We regret that. And now that we have kids, we're really trying to instill more prayer together. Um, but m- my point is, is that nothing will actually connect you to another person the way praying together will. It's a very unique thing, and it knits hearts together with the intention that God would align our hearts with His. Okay, listen. We need to get His will. See, you're, when you come to prayer, you might be motivated by all different types of things, right? You, your motivation to go to the Lord in prayer might be Thanksgiving or worship, right? We love to worship the Lord in prayer. We love to do that. Maybe, maybe you've got something that needs to be prayed about. Maybe it's supplication. Maybe it's intercession on the behalf of someone else. You might have all kinds of motivations to go to the Lord in prayer. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. It is God's intent that prayer be our verbal assent to His will and work. And upon every amen, we must be closer to conformity to Jesus Christ. Every time we say amen, we ought to be that much closer to looking like and being aligned with Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what prayer should do. It should take our desires. You know, a lot of times you go to the the Lord in prayer and it ain't right. You know, you got some things, you got some opinions, and they're off a little bit. And you think you're going into prayer to meet with the Lord and what you're doing is you're trying to impose your will upon Him. You know what I'm talking about? But what needs to happen in prayer is that by the time you say amen all of that has died and you've come to agreement with him Jesus Christ prays not my will but yours be done and he goes to the cross Corporate prayer is crucial is a crucial ingredient to fellowship Okay Now what's next we got to keep going, guys. we got to keep going. You with me? we got ten minutes. And we've got to call it quits. So hang with me here. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Verse 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Everyone had fear. What an odd statement. Who would have thought that fear would be crucial to fellowship? We hate fear. Why? Why? Because so many of us are, are dominated by fear. We're ruled by it. And the invitation of fear seems ridiculous to us because we're already controlled by so many worldly fears. You know, the Christian is not called to fear the world. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 6 teaches us we're called to to fear who? God. We're called to fear God. The world can't do anything to us. They they hold no power. But we're called to fear the Lord. Fear Fear means just that. It means terror. You know, a lot of people will try to define t- uh, fear in, in the Bible and they try to, you know, soften it a little bit. They make it more about reverence. Reverence is crucial to fear. I'm not taking that away, but they try to soften it. Like, we ought not fear the Lord. Now listen to me. These 3,000 believers that just accepted Christ, you know what they recognize? They recognize that, that the day before, they were on their way to hell. And they fear God. The fear of God is instilled into their hearts knowing that He delivered them from damnation. Fear is knowing that God in heaven has all power. Fear is awestruckness by the sheer power of God who's delivered us from eternal damnation. That's what it is. Key point number five. Godly fear is the result of knowing God's true nature. These young believers knew God. And they were being taught the doctrines. And they were coming to recognize who they were in light of an all-powerful Savior. Godly fear is the result of knowing God's true nature. The eternal and divine was made clear to them. Particularly in light of how weak we are. They saw beyond the insufficiency of the temporal world in light of the powerful, mighty, and magnificent God. I'm going to share with you a few verses here. You ready for that? Okay. Job 28.28 28 says, And unto man, he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, and to, to, to depart from evil is understanding. Wow. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Now let's contrast that with Job 14.1 and what it says about who we are. Job fourteen one. By the way, Alex, thank you so much for your job study last week. I don't know how you got through that whole book, but you did. it was awesome. Praise God, it was a blessing. Job fourteen one. Man that is born of a woman is of few days, and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower, and is cut down. He fleeth also as a as a shadow, and continueth not. Oh, oh so we kind of we kind of we kind of suck. Hmm. Let's keep reading. Psalm 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. There's that word covenant, yeah. The, the, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. Psalm 39, 5, in contrast, says, Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breath, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Whew. Psalm thirty three eight, in contrast to that, that let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. See, fearing God means really just understanding the difference between the eternal and the temporal, the strong and the weak. The power and the magnificence of God versus how beggarly and short-lived we are. That is the beginning of fear. That is where the secrets lie. And for these believers, they feared God. You know what? Some of you are in danger of harming our ministry because the truth is you don't fear God. And so you remain in your sin. You are doing harm to to the fellowship of the believers that are gathered here, that gather in your Bible study, because you remain in sin, because you don't fear the consequences of God. You aren't awestruck by His power and authority over your life. And that shamefulness that you should carry, you're flippant. And you put our ministry in danger You know, I grew up learning about the founding fathers from my from my grandfather, the, f- the founders of this nation. You know, America, the United States of America. Okay, and uh, you know he w- he was really into history. He was a history buff, and he and he talked about uh, you know all of these. You know, he he taught me all these lessons on. He loved to read about Thomas Jefferson. He loved Thomas Jefferson. Okay, um, you know the thing that I realized though, if you look at, at the, the history. Of the United States is that it wasn't long after, uh, and we could talk about just the amount of debate that went into the Constitution. But not long after the Constitution, uh, uh, the stuff hit the fan, and things got bad. People were at each other's throat, and and you got you've got political leaders uh, dueling. Right, you guys know the story of Aaron Burr and, and Hamilton, right? You guys know that story. All right, this is like. I can't remember off the top of my head. This is like 15 years after the Constitution signed. These dudes are out in the street shooting each other. You know, the early believers in Acts didn't struggle with internal unrest and conflict, at least not yet. They were agreed on the Apostles' Doctrine. They were agreed in fellowship. They were agreed in fear. They had all things common. This is why single-mindedness is important. Look at the next verse. And all that believed were together and had all things common. They had all things common. You know, in our world we see division is everywhere. And division exists even within the church and within the local church because of competing desires and competing authorities. That's why. That's why that unrest exists. For most churches, the solution is to loosen their doctrinal positions rather than lean into truth. Do we not see that? In the church, especially here in America, we see people, that the pastoral, the answer, the Christian leadership's answer to unrest and division in the church is to loosen doctrinal authorities so that everyone is accepted and coming together, right? That it's no longer a narrow path that we're walking, right? It's this broad path. It's a very broad path. And whatever you bring to the, the table, brother or sister, that's good. That's good. That's the solution. That's the solution. No, no, no. In the early church, the solution was to adhere and to have all things common. Single-mindedness was the solution. It was the ingredient. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Key point number six. Key point number six. We're getting there. Hang with me. A united church glorifies God and invites His blessing. The, the Bible instructs us to unite under Christ. That's what it instructs us to do. Romans 15.5 says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. You don't have to turn it. Go back so that you can see that. I know that they're writing that down. Sorry. Romans 15.5, but listen, listen to me. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be with one mind and one mouth, glorify God even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ at MBT we side with the literality of God's word and this is the foundation of our fellowship and it creates single-mindedness and it allows us to glorify God with singleness of mind and singleness of purpose you understand it's super important the last ingredient are you ready they sold their possessions and goods and parted them, all men, as every man had need. Note what they did. They took what they had, what they had earned, what they had worked to get, and they sold it. And they parted it. And they divided it. They didn't do it for the Red Cross. They didn't do it for the United Way or Convoy of Hope. They weren't distributing. Uh, to, to, to projects outside of the church. No, they distributed among the brethren. They gave to their church in order to provide for the needs of the church. This isn't a social justice model. This is not communism. This is a familial model. This is what family does. You guys modeled this for me just recently, and it, and it, it moved me, and I appreciate that. See, this is an act intended to strengthen, strengthen the brethren. This pattern is given and it's improved upon. It's refined. You can see that in chapter four. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to skip over this. You know, Paul's letter to, to the Corinthians points to this kind of sacrificial giving. His advice to the Corinthians, which was a really well you guys know the church in Corinth was really wealthy. And he talks to them about the church in Macedonia who was not wealthy. They were very impoverished. And he says to, to the church in Corinth, speaking of Macedonia, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in, great, in a great trial of affliction the abundances of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with such Entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in every thing, in faith, in utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in, you, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. See, they gave everything. Now, the church in Macedonia gave everything. They were poor, and they still gave everything to minister to those Jews that were being persecuted because they knew that that was better. That was better for them. It brought them joy. They didn't, think, they didn't think real long and hard about how that might harm their savings account. When their brethren were in need, they responded in a very specific way. Look at the instruction in 2 Corinthians 9 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall, shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give. That's super important. As he purposeth in his heart. This has to be about conviction. Okay, no one's telling you what to do. It has to be a conviction of what God is doing in your life. So let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Key point number seven. A Christian liberated to give honors God builds the brethren, and strengthens the work. Okay? We can see this modeled for us in Scripture. A Christian that's liberated to give honors God. God loves it. He he, he loveth a cheerful giver. It builds the brethren. It comes to the aid of those who are in need, and it builds them up, and then it strengthens the work. It strengthens the work. Now, these are all ingredients of a faithful church. Um, uh, Elena heard me brag about this. Last year, I, uh, my department, uh, art department, entered a chili cook-off, and we, and we won first place. We won first place. Duh. Yeah. No, in the years past, we won second place over and over and over again. We won second place. And you know what? We didn't try. We weren't trying. We were just like, okay, guys, everybody brings something, and we'll make a chili. And year after year, we just got second place. You know Why? Because there's no continuity to the ingredients. So what I did is I said, no, nope, we're not doing that. Guys, I'm really good at, at making chili. <laughs> Let me give you the ingredients to bring. And then, and then I will make the chili on your behalf. <laughs> so everybody brought something. Everybody brought something. And we had a recipe. Okay? We had ingredients, specific ingredients. And when, when everyone followed the ingredients... We freaking won. The ribbon is hanging over uh, the toilet in the art office right now. See, this was the character of a church that God could use. This was a church that was first place in God's mind, right? Right? Acts chapter 2, verse 46, And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and listen, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. God used them. He blessed them. He strengthened them. He made them a people of purpose, and people were added to the church daily such as should be saved, just as what should be true in this ministry. Do we have the ingredients? As we enter into worship, um, I'll have the worship team come up. Here's the question for you. Listen and look at me and listen. How do the decisions that you make as an individual hinder unity or strengthen our church? your disobedience will hinder. Okay, And if there's something here that's missing, if there's an ingredient in your life that you're not bringing to the table, then you need to deal with it. If you don't have a singular authority, you need to deal with it. If you don't fear the Lord and you're mocking Him with your sin, you need to deal with it. If your fellowship is off, if your prayer life is off, if you're not single-minded with the brothers and sisters in this ministry, And there's something that's dividing you, then you're hindering the work. And we need to use this example of Acts chapter 2 to see what it is that we're bringing, what, what ingredients are missing. Because it's the difference between unity and disunity, purpose and purposelessness, and God's use of us or our uselessness. Do you understand? So let's reconcile that today as we enter into worship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Acts chapter 2. I thank you for what you're teaching us. Lord, I'm so grateful that you've given us. I know that things, these are people, okay? So there was sin and there was struggle, there was difficulty. But Lord, you chose to show us in your word what it looked like in the purity of what was happening. And you show us that as an example. And so, Lord, teach us as individuals what ingredients are we bringing? What ingredients are we actually bringing? Lord, I pray that you would cause us uh, to to get right with you and to be aligned and to be agreed and to be purposed together, that our fellowship would be true, and Lord, that you would use us and bless us, that we would see more souls saved and discipled. In your Son's name, amen.